Hey there, thanks for listening in. This is episode 19 of the science fiction novel Engines Under Ursus, written and narrated by Martin Brady. This episode is called Hall of the Ancients. Podsafe music is provided by Markovich slash AMP from the album Emotive Force. I include two tracks, both of which are excellent in my opinion, Icebox and Tullacana. Now let's get back to the story. Previously on Engines Under Ursus. What part of CityNet is this? Asked Fowler. This is not CityNet, replied the monitor. So where the hell am I? Asked Fowler, feeling the cold wind cutting through his light clothes. He began to shiver. You are on the ancient homeworld of Zuth. Fowler shook his head. That's impossible. The ancients don't have any dealings with us, said Fowler. Recheck. This is Zuth, confirmed the monitor. Ahead of him in the distance, he saw a giant set of doors leading into the nearby mountainside. Light streamed out from between the heavy doors, which were slightly ajar, revealing an entrance which had been carved out from the rocky core. Take me back to CityNet, demanded Fowler. But the monitor did not respond. He stood in the cold wind, unsure what to do, his breath frosting up. He tried to drop out, but that did not work either, and he began to feel trapped. The light from the mountain offered the most readily available shelter. Fowler walked towards it tentatively in the howling wind, wondering what lay within. The wind was howling as Fowler walked up towards the entrance leading into the mountain. He shivered as the icy sleet bit into his clothing. At the base of the mountain, he climbed over the ruins of what looked like a town which had once been located there, but had long since passed with time. He made his way over the rocky outline of crumbled walls, trying to move more quickly, hoping to get in from the harsh elements. Fowler's frosty breath marked his path as he began to walk up a stone slope which had been worn smooth and slippery. Fowler found indentations in the stone, almost as if feet had taken the same path over the centuries. Fowler wondered why the stone was so smooth, finding no immediate answers. He reached the apex of the entrance to the mountain and wiped the sleet out of his hair. He looked up at the two giant doors in front of him. There was an inscription carved into the rocky frame, which supported the giant doors. The alien language was unfamiliar to Fowler. Translate, he said. Only the repentant may enter, replied the monitor. Fowler wrapped his arms together in a vain attempt to keep himself warm. He looked on either side of him, wondering what the words meant. There were figures carved from stone, which were kneeling and praying by prayer benches. The figures were wearing hooded cloaks and had their hands clasped together as if offering up their thoughts and wishes. Beside the carved figures were empty stone prayer benches. Okay, I repent, said Fowler as he walked forward towards the doors. As he did, a ripple of energy closed in on him from either side of the entrance, like two thundering waves. The force field slammed together in front of Fowler, and the force threw him backwards through the air, where he hit the ground and slid to a stop on the smooth rock. 
The fellow gasped for air, groaning a little, and then stood up. Shakily, he got onto his feet again. He knew why the stone was so smooth now. Fowler looked around him, wondering if there was any other way to find shelter. He quickly drew a blank. Either I find shelter or I'll freeze here, he realised. The normal city net safety protocols were not being maintained, and he worried what neural damage might be done to his body. He picked up a rock and walked up to the entrance again. He threw the rock at the giant doors. The force field kicked into place once more, and the rock was cast backwards onto the smooth stone. Damn it, muttered Fowler, as his teeth chattered. Only the repentant may enter, Fowler repeated to himself, beginning to lose the feeling in his fingers. He clasped his hands together and blew some of his breath through them, trying to warm them up, figuring out what he needed to do. He looked at the carved figures who offered him his best visual clue. They were all kneeling and praying. He looked at an empty prayer bench and walked over to it, assuming the same praying posture as the stone-carved person wearing the hooded cloak. Only the, the repentant, he muttered to himself. He was shaking all over and he closed his eyes, wondering what, if anything, he had to repent about. All he could feel was the cold. He pushed his elbows against one another, trying to concentrate. He sucked in a breath and found himself in a different place and time in his mind. Kneeling like this made him feel like he was at church. As he knelt, his thoughts were cast back to a time when he was a young boy of nine on earth. Fowler returned to a very special day in his life. It was the last day his mother and father would remain a couple. Little Tom Fowler sat between his parents in church, looking at the people in front of him. His father sat to his right, and his mother was to the left, in the packed church. There was a strong smell of tobacco and alcohol from his father, which contrasted with the flower-filled perfumes from his mother. They listened to the Easter homily given by the parish priest, who related the lessons of the past to the present. Tom looked up at his dad and smiled. His father Dan looked down at his son, looking proud and a little sad at the same time. Fowler's mother, Maria, looked on. She took Tom's hand and squeezed it without looking across at him, paying attention to the priest. Tom looked along the walls of the church and the stations of the cross. The stained glass windows dimmed the incoming light, making everything seem reverential, but sombre. After Mass, they stood in the churchyard. Neither Tom's mother nor his father were talking to one another, staying polite but distant. Dan lit up a cigarette, then crouched down to Tom's height. You're the man of the house now, Tom. I have to go away on a trip, and I'm not sure when I'm coming back. Can you promise me you'll look after your mother for me and do what she tells you? Tom remembered nodding and smiling at his dad, wanting to make him proud. His father pulled out a set of coloured dice from his pocket and gave them to Tom. Will you look after my lucky dice? said Dan, smiling. Sure I will, Dad, responded Tom proudly. However, his mother came over and instantly took them off him and threw them away. Both father and son watched the two dice connected by a thin chain as they rotated through the air before bouncing on the ground and going into a set of bushes. Their eyes and facial expressions were exactly the same as they tracked the path of the arcing dies. Both minds, young and old, wondered what numbers had come up, 
when the dice had come to a stop. "'Haven't we been through enough without giving him those?' said Maria, before taking Tom's hand. She escorted him away briskly across the churchyard. The father remembered trying to wave goodbye to his dad, who slowly stood up and walked over to the bushes to try and find his lucky dice. This was the day Fowler lost his dad and his mother lost her home, and they ended up living in a small, cold apartment. Later, in a quiet moment, when the tears had cleared, they sat amongst the unpacked movers' boxes, and Maria explained to Tom how his father had gambled away their home. Fowler then remembered the day that his father had plucked up the courage to turn up at the door of their rented home, hoping for a reunion. He was badly shaven and, and was carrying a bunch of flowers, which looked like they could have been picked from somebody's front garden. Tom remembered the day very well. His mother took the flowers from his father and threw them to the ground and stamped on them, telling him to get out and to never come back. Tom had looked out of the apartment window as he saw his father for the last time, walking slowly up the road, straightening his shabby coat, trying to remain dignified. Tom wanted to run out of the house and grab his father by the hand. Instead, he had stood by the window, looking at his father, walking into the distance. Tom had not moved, frozen in place like a nice statue, wishing his father back. Fowler dwelled on a final scene in his mind, that of his father's funeral. He was a young teenage boy now, attending the final rites of his father's life. He stood there with his stepfather and his mother. Tom looked over at her and watched as she had cried as the casket was lowered slowly into the ground. Tom was lost and empty inside, head sunken. He had watched his mother's tears and had been confused and angry with her at the time. How could she care for him after what she had done, refusing his act of reconciliation, he wondered. Fowler had always believed his father could have come back and everything could have been fixed up. Now, as Fowler knelt in the freezing sleet, he realized he should not have been angry with her. She had done her best to protect him. Through it all, she had still loved his father. When she had stamped on the flowers, she had done it to protect her son, even though she had wanted Dan back. The moment replayed in Fowler's mind slowly as she took the flowers from his hand. For a brief moment, she had smiled as she had taken them from him. Then she had glanced over her shoulder and made eye contact with little Tom, so small and vulnerable, and her smile had faded to one of concern for him. In the next moment, she threw the flowers to the ground and told her husband to get out for the final time. Her eyes had welled up with tears as she had said the words. Fowler realized the truth. She did it for me, he thought, expelling a frosty breath. And Fowler repented. The large doors leading into the mountain opened, powered by hidden motors. The doors themselves seemed to grind against the ground, sliding open reluctantly, dragging the dust and dirt beneath them. Fowler turned and picked up a small rock and threw it forward, not wanting to take any chances. It passed the barrier this time without any field emerging to repel it. He stood up and walked forward, tensed, in case of any unexpected surprise, but none came. He walked into what looked like an antechamber, but his spirits dropped immediately. The dark, curved room with a set of smaller inner double doors at the other end were closed, and it was still desperately cold. 
Two carved, rubbed individuals stood at either side of the double doors, each carrying torches which gave off a dim light. He looked above the door and there was another inscription above it. <sighs> Translate, said Fowler, sighing. The howling wind was gone, but it was still freezing cold. Only a worshipper may enter, replied the monitor. He looked around the room and found rows of lockers in the dark corners, with locks each shaped out from what looked like a dragon's head. He pressed together the mouth of one dragon, and the door opened, revealing a dark robe inside. Above it, in a small compartment, was a small globe, resting on a velvet cushion. He ignored the globe and put on the robe, which was almost feather-light. As he put it on, he felt almost like it was moulding itself around him, acquainting itself with Fowler's body. A belt slid into place, tightening itself around his waist, and it clicked into place. Fowler pulled down the hood, but it kept trying to lift back up, almost as if it had a mind of its own. "'Stay down, damn it,' said Fowler, irritated, and it did, almost like it had understood his instruction. As he walked towards the inner double doors again, the room began to fill with a dim blue light. Fowler stopped and slowly turned around, looking for the new light source. Surprised, he found that this small orb was following him as he walked. He took a step to the right and it moved with him, but it did not seem to be hostile. "'Hello?' said Fowler, wondering if it was some kind of communication device. But it did nothing but grow a little brighter as he talked. He accepted its presence, realising it came with the robe, and stood in front of the inner double doors, hoping for something to happen, the warmth slowly returning to his body. He watched as the double doors seemed to unlock themselves, revealing the Hall of the Ancients. More light streamed from the room inside, revealing its detail. What Feller saw made him catch his breath. The open doors revealed a giant cavern which stretched for miles. On either side of the interior of the cave, as it stretched into the distance, were carved statues and walkways at the higher levels, which seemed to have no clear means of access. Ahead of Fowler there was a rainbow created by two giant waterfalls, which streamed down from holes in the rock face above. The waterfalls threw up clouds of water vapour which formed the rainbow over an arched bridge. The bridge crossed the deep channel of choppy water which cut across the white floor which was several hundred feet wide. The most striking part of the arched bridge were the four creatures which closely resembled dragons. There was one standing on each of the four pillars. The dragons were carved and their mouths reached upwards, their wings slightly unfurled as if about to take off or about to breathe fire. The bridge had to be crossed, and as he grew closer to it, he looked briefly on either side of him at the giant carved warriors standing in place, each over one hundred feet high. Hidden beneath their armour, some appeared to be carrying curved, shaped weapons. Fowler lifted the hood of the robe as he crossed the bridge and looked down at the choppy water, thinking for a moment that he saw something large and menacing swimming within it. The waterfalls made a thunderous roar as he crossed the bridge, and he continued forward, hoping that the thing he saw in the water would not emerge. The channel of fast-moving water disappeared into a dark cavern, and Fowler continued on past it, moving down the main corridor. He stood for a moment and took the scene in. There were literally thousands of giant carvings ahead of him, and the cavern stretched on as far as the eye could see. Fowler wondered what lay in the distance. Then something sudden and unexpected happened. The small glowing orb floating above him flew up the Hall of the Ancients at great speed, forming almost a beam of continuous light. 
The father's consciousness seemed to follow it, seeing what it saw as it moved. It had become a part of him now that he was wearing the robe. The carved statues flashed by his mind's eye and reached the point where he had been looking almost one mile away. Fowler rocked on his spot dizzily, finding the sudden flow of information too much. Come back. As soon as he had said it, the globe raced back to him. He realised there was more to this place than he could understand. He looked at the giant statue to his right. The figure was the first to resemble his robed clothing. He walked over to it, wondering if there were more clues he could harvest while he was here as to what this place was. He looked up towards the hooded form which was over one hundred feet tall and wondered how he could get up to the two ledges where there seemed to be some dimly lit consoles. Strangely, Fowler felt it like he was getting closer to the ledge. The statue was moving down as he looked up. Fowler looked down and suddenly realised that he was slowly floating upwards. Oh my God, I'm flying, realised Fowler. He stopped in mid-air and looked down, realising he was already ten feet off the ground. He panicked a little, wondering if he could fall out of the robe, but he felt as if he was standing on a solid surface. He decided to carry on and look up at the ledge with the consoles and continued upwards. The wall moved past him and he grew level with the ledge. Fowler then stepped onto it, looking down from the height he was at. Awesome, thought Fowler, and then sat down in front of the console. There was no keyboard, only a place to lay his hands. Fowler took a deep breath and placed his hands on the surface and then everything suddenly and dramatically changed for him again. He was no longer in the Hall of the Ancients, but outside it, high on a mountain ledge. Fowler was dressed in a robe and back on an earth, the creature which looked uncannily like a dragon, except that it had three legs, one of which was positioned under its chest and had razor-sharp claws. Weapons were mounted on its folded wings, and it looked down onto the plain below where a giant army was laying siege to the mountain fortress. He realised he was witnessing an ancient battle. Fanner looked through the eyes of the riders and watched as the army below launched pulses of energy at the rocky outcrops. Fowler pressed his legs together and the Uruth soared into the air, evading the hail of fire on it. It banked left and right along with the other riders who had followed their lead and came in low and fast over the encamped army, which had laid siege to the town, leaving only rubble. All that were left were the riders and those hiding in the mountain tunnels and caves. It was time for survival or extinction. The Uruth strafed the army, but was struck and brought down. Fowler reenacted the movements of the legendary rider, jumping off the Uruth. Fowler did a mid-air somersault before the Uruth crashed into the ground and landed in the heart of the army. The rider pulled out one of the many weapons hidden under his robe and used it to slice through the hordes of grey, misshapen beings. The suit allowed the rider Asht to view everything almost in slow motion as he carved up the rank-and-file creatures, watching their black blood fill the air like it was momentarily defying gravity, as if frozen in time. He moved through the hordes like a dark shadow, cutting them down before they had barely time to react, but they were alert to his presence. A white light filled Asht's vision, and he found himself suddenly lying prone on the ground as an energy weapon had caught his shadow-like movement moving as fast as him. The recording ended unexpectedly there, and Fowler wondered what the outcome had been. He placed his hands on the reader again, but it was unresponsive. The recording had shown him what the robe was capable of, and Fowler felt strangely brave, and dropped off the ledge and did a backward somersault. He stopped mid-air, realising all he had to do was command the robe's movement with his mind. He began to spin in the air, and then did a backflip, which had the effect of leaving him hanging upside down. 
The father sucked in a deep breath as he saw another ancient walking quickly towards him. The father spun around immediately and landed on his feet. The ancient, who seemed to have appeared from nowhere, was in a hurry. The ancient walked towards Fowler, oblivious to him. Hello? said Fowler nervously. But the ancient just walked past him as if he did not exist. He walked over to the statue of Asht and knelt down at one of the prayer stations, where he remained still. My name's Tom Fowler. I've come from Urstal. The ancient was unresponsive. Hello? Fowler tentatively touched the robe of the ancient, but the material did not budge, almost as if he had not touched it. He moved his hand in front of the hood, waving it back and forward, wondering if the ancient could see him at all. Can you hear me? The ancient stood up, still not responding, then took a small step like a small hop, and flew up the hall of the ancients into the distance. Fowler suddenly realized the obvious. Monitor, is this a live feed, or is it a recording? It is a recording, it replied. Fowler sighed. Why didn't you tell me? You did not ask, the monitor replied, matter of fact. Is there anything else I should know? What do you require to know? Fowler blinked rapidly, assimilating the information. When was this recording made? A precise time is unavailable. What is the purpose of it? demanded Fowler. Unknown, it answered. Well, was this recorded a week or a month ago? More than a day, and less than a week, it answered. Fowler shook his head and realized he was missing the obvious question. Who recorded this? This has been recorded by the Antex, replied the monitor. How? Explain. Fowler was confused. I don't understand. Show me. Suddenly, the Hall of Ancients began to glow with golden light. But Fowler looked at the glowing dirt under his feet. He reached down and picked it up. What is this? asked Fowler. These are Antex, explained the monitor. They made this recording? queried Fowler. So they're on suit as well? Yes, replied the monitor. Where did that ancient go? asked Fowler. Unknown, replied the monitor. Fowler quickly turned, realizing the antics were trying to show him something by being here, and the best clue he currently had was to follow the ancient, who had been at the prayer still. Fowler focused his thoughts. I want to follow that ancient who was here a moment ago, thought Fowler, looking at the robe. The small blue orb pulsed as he created the thoughts. He took a step and jumped into the air and was flying once more, following the path of the Ancient. The small blue orb continued to follow him as he flew, staying alongside him. Fowler stopped suddenly in the centre of a large, circular room, which had carved, robed figures dotted all around it. He stood alone in a cone of light, which streamed down through a hole in the ceiling of the room. Some of the carved statues were carrying scrolls and tables, and others had their arms raised as if waving or making a legal point. A few had their arms crossed, and there was even one which was crouched down. The circular room had many doors leading in various directions, and Fowler was unsure in which direction to go. He was disappointed that the robe had not brought him straight to the ancient. The floor inside the giant hall was tiled, and there was a pattern he could not fully make out, because it was so large and receded into the darkness. Fowler looked above him at the carved ceiling. He smiled as he saw that the light was coming through a vertical tunnel leading into another space. Fowler went up on his toes, and the robe took him upwards. He glanced down briefly as he moved upwards and saw that the centre of the tiled floor was the open mouth of an earth. 
He looked up and caught his breath as he came into a giant, carved-out space inside the heart of the mountain. It was a massive space containing many living quarters. The walls had chambers carved out of the rock, and all had ancients within them, who looked small in the distance, going about their business. There were thousands of them, possibly even millions, realised Fowler, as he tried to take in their vast numbers. He let the robe guide him towards the ancient he was looking for. A strange sound like eerie music filled his ears and mind as he moved up higher into the reaches of the mountain where there were dozens of ancients dancing in the air to music which sounded like that made by Greek sirens. Slowly he passed through them as they danced with flowing movements. He began to feel a tremendous sense of love and belonging spread through his being almost like they were transmitting their goodwill to him. Fowler felt almost like he was having a religious experience and that he was in the presence of angels. He wanted to reach out to them, but instead he let the robe carry him through their number. The movement of air and sound echoed strangely inside the large chamber. Having passed them, he felt the robe bringing him towards a plateau, carved with scrolls and ancient words. Fowler stepped into the entrance and walked up the narrow corridor, which was like a library of stony books and texts. He walked past an ancient who was moving texts, causing them to float from one place to another. The robe on this ancient was a lighter grey, and Fowler moved forward into the master chamber, which was shaped like an octagon and almost like an ancient library. At the centre of the room there were two ancients. Fowler recognised the one who had been praying beside him and walked cautiously over to him. There was another one, with a band on his arm, who was seated and surrounded by a stack of books and scrolls. Both ancients were looking at one another. Above them, in the higher reaches, there were other ancients who were sorting and moving texts through the air. Some scrolls lifted off the table, while others rested there for analysis. The two ancients appeared to be talking to one another. Translate said Fowler to the monitor. What brings you here? asked Tsar as he scanned the newly recovered scrolls. Can you not see I am busy? 
there has been a disturbance on Ursus, reported Zut. One of the many scrolls in front of Tsar rolled itself up and was quickly replaced by another one in its place. Tsar sighed, unable to hide his frustration with Zut. And if there is, of what importance? You bring me grave news of an incident on a world that has died over a million years ago. Not only that, but a world that refused our help. Tsar paused. Correction. Your help. Zut moved uncomfortably on his spot. You dwell too much on the past, Zut. I have more pressing work for you to do, which deals with the present and the future. You need to regain your focus. Zut stood his ground. Was it not you who taught me that all things are connected? He replied. Tsar nodded. It was, and I failed to see the connection here. Is there some great significance to this so-called disturbance you mention? There was an explosion near the resting place of the Bazons. I wish to investigate. Why do you wish to investigate? asked Tsar. Because I made Yalthak a promise that I would watch over their world. Yalthak is dead, Zut. He is nothing more than dust now. I gave him my word. He may be dead, but I am not Master Tsar. Zut folded his arms stubbornly. Tsar nodded beneath his cowl, not wanting to make matters worse. Then make me a promise, one which you will hold to me, that once you have completed this apparent investigation, promise me that you will help the living, in particular your own kind, in this difficult task. He pointed to the many scrolls in front of him. I shall, insisted Zut. What of the pieces of nine? Only two have been located, said Tsar wearily. Seven stubbornly remain. The third, I have recently surfaced some clues, which I would like you to follow. So it is true, then. They are coming. Tsar nodded. Almost as certainly as death follows life. The scrolls that we have retrieved warn of their arrival. When and where? asked Zut. The when, I know but shall remain known only to me and the elders for now. The where lies in the pieces of nine. He changed focus, tired of his never-ending task. And what of Erstalsut? What of the new life gathering there? Zut looked away momentarily. They continue to build new Erstal with the help of the Cotesian Confederation. Technically, what the crystal worshippers have constructed is primitive and no threat to us. However, the ring world makes the new life hopeful. Tsar clasped his hands together. As am I that you shall help me with my work. Now be gone and return quickly before there is another disturbance to distract you and bring you somewhere else. I ask that you do not embrace this disturbance and its connections. You may watch and record, but let the ripples feed their own path, which is not your own. 
I understand. Zoot bowed a little. Thank you, Master Zar. I will not fail you. Zar scanned the next scroll. There will be danger for you when you return. That is my only assurance for you, Zoot. When is there not? replied Zoot as he walked past Fowler, who quickly turned and followed the fast-moving ancient. Fowler followed Zoot out of the Hall of the Ancients. Zoot's ship shimmered into view as he walked towards it, decloaking. The ship was shaped to look like a Narut. The head of the ship turned as if alive and looked at Zoot as he walked towards it. The metal superstructure seemed to be alive. And? asked the ship. To Ursus, replied Zoot. Ah, to the old ones, spoke the ship thoughtfully, and then looked forward again. Zoot stood beneath the giant chest of the earth ship and floated up and in through a small hatch, taken up by a transporter beam. Fowler followed his lead and also appeared inside the ship. Zoot had already taken a seat by the controls, and the ship took off. Zoot's hands danced over the flat console, and the space outside the ship seemed to turn to liquid. Before Fowler knew it, the planet was a distant dot. Again, the space around the ship changed texture, and they were at Maslow's Wall, the barrier defining ancient territory. The barrier was an impregnable set of automated drones forming a wall which stretched for light years and had been first discovered by the human trader and adventurer Matthew Maslow. Later, others coined the term Maslow's Wall to describe the ancient defensive perimeter he had recorded in his logs. The perimeter opened up for Zoot's ship and closed behind him. His ship cloaked once more. It moved rapidly towards Erstal and then slowed as it recorded the progress of New Erstal. Fowler looked out of the viewport as Zoot's ship coasted past the giant, newly formed ringworld. The ship was invisible to the Cartesian robots, which continued to build the superstructure steadily one piece at a time. Space turned to liquid again, and the orange world of Ursus appeared with its orbiting moons. The ship slowed as it passed by the moons Babel and Nemona, and Fowler began to sense great sadness from Zoot. The ancient pressed his hands together as if terribly agitated and torn. He dropped his head, shaking it a little beneath the cowl. Monitor, what is Zoot thinking about? asked Fowler. The past. How long ago? wondered Fowler. When Ursus was still alive, over one million years ago. He is recalling a meeting he once had. Can you show me? asked Fowler. Yes, replied the monitor. Do it then, answered Fowler. The dead planet in front of the window suddenly changed to one of a lush world, with ships coming and going. Zoot now sat down at a table beside a Bazon who Fowler instantly recognized. It was Yalthak. Fowler walked over to the two parties who were talking, intrigued by what they were discussing. Translate, said Fowler. Zoot's orb was projecting a hologram of a giant space-based shield which lay between a simulated Ursus and its sun. The shield will protect your world from destruction by your dying sun, Yalthak. We have deployed it successfully on many of our older worlds. We can reseed your sun so that it is no longer a threat to your kind. Then we can remove the shield once your sun has been reconfigured. It will take about one thousand years to accomplish. I have the assurance of the others that your world will be protected at no cost. 
You are our ally. We value your friendship, and we thank you for the nanotechnology you have openly shared with us. It has been of great benefit to us all. All you need do is to give the word, and we will begin to deploy the shield. Yaltak sat forward. We thank you for your kind offer, Sooth. But we must respectfully decline, said Yaltak. I do not think you understand, Yaltak. If you do not do this, your world will be destroyed, and your kind along with it. I understand perfectly, said Yaltak. Birth, growth, and death are the natural cycle. We do not wish to change this. We do not fear death. He paused, seeing that Zuth did not understand. My friend, you have been a cherished ambassador to our homeworld, and have become part of our extended family. I realize that you must find this difficult, as Ursus has become your world too. Sooth remained undeterred. We could temporarily install it while you might reconsider. Again, we decline respectfully. Yaltak sat forward and touched Sooth on the shoulder. I remember when you first arrived amongst us, Sooth. You had come from a war and you were tired and weary of living. I remember you told me so. Do you recall? Zut nodded. And what did I tell you then? Zut spoke up. That all things have a time and a place, and that it is predestined. We must accept our place in the universe as we accept the position of the stars in the sky. Yaltak explained further. This world was our time and our place, my friend. We do not wish to live forever on Ursus. This was our beginning, and this shall be our end. I cannot accept that, said Sooth. That is defeat. To some, perhaps, admitted Yaltak. However, my friend, let me explain further. Yaltak leaned in close to Zooth, and the words faded away. I can't hear anything, complained Fowler. There is nothing more said the monitor. But they're still talking, insisted Fowler. There is nothing more. Fowler looked away, and the view in the ship had changed. The surface of Ursus was visible once more, but Zuth was nowhere to be seen on board the ship. Ursus was barren and dead once again. Where is Zuth? asked Fowler. He is on the surface of Ursus, replied the monitor. Fowler looked out of the viewport and saw Zuth disappear into the tunnel that had once nearly taken Fowler's life. Zuth was still only wearing his robe. There were no environment suits. Fowler stepped into the transporter. He sucked in a deep breath instinctively and was transported down to the surface of Ursus, keeping his fingers crossed that he hadn't done something stupid. The robe immediately created some kind of atmosphere pocket around it, and Fowler's worst fears were allayed. He walked towards the underground tunnel, following Zuth's path. The small blue orb continued to follow him around. He walked past the shell of the burnt-out transport that had once carried Mesler to this place and then onwards to his death. Fowler realized the recording was made possibly hours, maybe even a day after he had made his escape. The ship they had seen floating in the sky that day had not been Zuth's. Many things were uncannily similar to how he had remembered it. It was even the new tunnel he had drilled to escape from his underground tomb. 
He walked down the incline, and the cavern was lit up with a bright blue light emanating from Zoot's orb. Zoot was crouched down and examining the pieces of Entech core which had been removed by the other team. Zoot picked up one of the pieces and threw it angrily to the ground. He let out a strange sound like a roar made from scratching sounds, and it echoed around the chamber. Fowler was forced to put his hands over his ears, and he felt a mixture of anger and sadness that Zoot felt. It was as if a band of crazed teenagers had come into an ancient graveyard and had vandalised revered gravestones. The noise stopped much to Fowler's relief. Zoot reached out his right hand, and the orb snapped from its position to his hand. Then Zoot did something that Fowler thought was not possible. The orb moulded itself around Zoot's hand, and his fingers rested on what looked like newly formed buttons. He began to move the reshaped orb up and down with his wrist. What had seemed like stable ground within the cavern rapidly changed. Fowler felt the ground begin to vibrate and shift, almost like the hard earth had turned into a fluid sandy rock at the command of Zoot. Fowler stretched out his arms wide like he was in an amusement park house of fun and the ground was shifting in unpredictable directions. Then suddenly it stopped, but to Fowler's amazement a fine dust began to gather in front of the orb and Fowler's vision grew hazy, like a curtain had been pulled over his eyes. He watched as Zoot tilted his arm back. Fowler saw a mirror image of himself, and Zooth walked backwards out of the cavern. Zooth tilted his arm further back, and he sped up the reversal of time, much to Fowler's amazement. Lights flashed on and off in the tunnel as days sped by in seconds. Fowler turned and suddenly saw himself and Mesler standing in the tunnel when they had first arrived. However, he could not see into the visors, but could make out Mesler's unmistakable portly figure. My God, he's tapping into the Antec time recording and playing it like a tape, realized Fowler, thinking he'd give his right arm to know how the ancient was doing it. Zooth scanned their movements and realized it was not what he was looking for. The tunnel had already been constructed. Zooth rolled the recording back further. A wide smile spread across Fowler's face as he rolled back to the time before Mesler and Fowler's arrival. Go, Zooth said Fowler, as he rolled back to the point where the cavern was initially being dug out. His own image and that of Mesler was replaced by a team of four individuals in environment suits who had carefully dug out the cavern. Zooth replayed the recording to the point where they were cutting the Antec core from the rocky base. Zooth then paused the moment and the characters were frozen like a landscape portrait, all focused around a glowing laser beam which was cutting neatly through the Antec core. Fowler's excitement was quickly replaced by disappointment when he realized that he could not see into the environment suits and the faces behind them. Zooth rolled it forward a little. One of the team members appeared to be in charge and ordered the others to alter the laser cutting angle to the Antec core. The other three were tall, each over seven feet tall. Fowler concluded that they could either be new breed humans or Ixian warrior class. The Ixus Rulunk marking on the digger pushed Fowler into thinking they were Ixians, but he realized it could also be a cunning ruse. Zooth stopped the recording and used his orb to scan the one in charge. Two beams moved over the frozen image, one moving down while the other moved up, crisscrossing one another. "'What are you seeing, Zooth?' asked Fowler vainly. He asked the monitor, but it merely responded with, "'Unknown.' Zooth moved on to the others, scanning them as well. Frantically, Fowler looked at the one in charge, trying to find some kind of special markings or identifiers, but there were none. 
The one in charge, who was a little under six feet tall in size, seemed thoughtful and was making some kind of recordings of the events on a powered tablet of some kind. He looked at it for any special markings, but again there were none. Fowler then turned to look for Zuth, but realised he had unexpectedly left the cavern. The image of the crew who had dug out the cavern faded and was replaced by the current image. Fowler swore and ran up the slope only to see Zuth floating in the air with his arms outstretched fifty feet away from the dig like some ancient prophet of doom. His orb was glowing brightly, generating some kind of pressure waves which felt like waves of water pulling him forward a little from where he stood. Fowler turned around only to see a fast approaching blizzard of sand moving towards him. He tried to get away from the entrance but was nearly knocked over by the gathering wind which was beginning to swirl around him. Step by step he moved away from the dig, holding onto one stone and then another, until he could barely see no further than his own hands. The air had turned into a wall of fast-moving sand. The blizzard threatened to suck him up into the air, into oblivion, and at the heart of the storm was Zuth controlling it. The Ancient had summoned a storm and Fowler clung on to the nearest rock for dear life. Eventually, the storm began to subside and the dig was cleansed by new sand which settled. Fowler looked up and Zuth was no longer floating in the air above him and nowhere to be seen. In the murky mist which followed, Fowler saw a shadowy figure walk straight towards him and he wondered if it was Zuth. Fowler then realised the figure had no robe and then heard Sal's unmistakable voice. You need to have a word with your tailor, said Sal, smiling brightly. Sal, how'd you get here? asked Fowler. Just like you did, he replied. Fowler's expression sank. Oh, don't tell me you're trapped here too. He looked around for Zuth, but he was nowhere to be seen, and the ship was gone too. No, I got myself a visitor's pass, smiled Sal. We're inside a miniature copy sitting there with a custom map created by the Antex. I cracked the codes to get in, so here I am. I assume you do want to leave, or are you just having too much fun? Just get me out of here, replied Fowler. Can do, replied Sal. All you need to do is click your heels together and say there's no place like home. The fellow shook his head. You're joking, right? Heck no. Saul shook his head. There is no place like home. The fellow smiled and did what Saul asked, and both were transported out of the Antec map. Fowler blinked, and he was back in the crown again, and his robe was gone. The Antec core collapsed in on itself, and then Fowler suddenly felt Kay's arm around him, hugging him. Are you okay? She asked. Fowler smiled. I'm fine, I'm okay. I, I thought you were... She choked up a little. I'm fine. He hugged her back and uncurled her arms from around him gently. I need you to do something for me, Kay. What? She asked. Can you get me the latest sat-nav images of the dig on Ursus? I need to check out what the ground layout looks like at present. Kay regained her composure and nodded. Saul reappeared beside them. The Antex have collapsed the map. It's completely gone, he said. What did you see when you were in there? asked Saul. More than I understand right now, said Fowler cryptically. We have something to show you, said Saul. Kay discovered it while you were gone. What? asked Fowler. We have to show you. Best way, replied Saul. Follow me, said Kay. As they walked, Kay explained... We tracked down the types of information the Antex were looking at. It's information to do with New Orstal, in particular the companies involved in New Orstal. They're a couple of minutes' walk from here. 
They left the crown and walked up to the new high-rise corporate buildings, which contained the companies setting up on New Erstal. Fowler had never heard of many of them. They stopped just outside the main road leading into the block. Fowler raised his eyebrows, realizing it looked just like any other corporate block. Okay, what am I looking for? asked Fowler. Turn on your Antec filter, said Kay, smiling nervously. Fowler did so, and then it became immediately apparent. What the hell? exclaimed Fowler. It had been a day of surprises, and this was the latest one. There was an invisible barrier beyond which none of the Antecs could cross. Fowler stepped forward, and the Antec infestation was gone. Then he stepped back, and it was there again. He moved his arm in and out to the same effect. The new Erstal sector was free of the Antec problem, and this was the place they were desperately trying to get into. But Fowler looked at Kay. How? We tracked it down to a new set of clean rooms recently set up on New Orstal. This entire sector is hosted there. The server firm covers all the buildings to do with New Orstal. The logs show it was one of the last changes Walt made. It's a temporary fix, though. All we need is for one Antec to get into the clean room, and they'll all end up like the rest of CityNet, so they've been hermetically sealed with only walkie-talkie access. Fowler nodded. Question is, why did the Antecs want to get in here so desperately? He wondered. What's so special about this place? And why did Walt just pick this block? Was it a lucky guess? If I know Walt, it wasn't. We were hoping you might know, smiled Saul. Did your Antec buddy show you anything about New Ursel when you were gone? No, mostly Ursus. Fowler shook his head, confused, but then smiled at Kay. You've outdone yourself, Kay. This is great work. And you too, saw. I should get lost more often. Kay beamed his smile. Fowler looked at Kay. I need to talk to Saul for a minute. Can you organize getting us access to the clean rooms? Let's go in as walkie-talkies. Transfer our signal there from CityNet. I want to take a look at what is in place up there. Sure, said Kay. Fowler walked away with Saul, wanting to have a quick word with him. They walked around a corner, out of view from Kay. Go secure said Fowler, and reality hazed up. What I tell you is confidential. You cannot tell anybody else this. I understand, said Saul. There was a break into CityNet just before the infestation. A team of hackers used an android to crack our security and stole something. I'm not sure about what went missing, but it might have something to do with all this. Have you heard anything about a team using an android in the middle attack? Overheard any stray conversations? Anything out of the ordinary? Sal perked up. Hmm. Android in the middle attack, you see. Absolutely, replied Fowler. Well, when I told you I decided to diversify because of the Antic infestation, I wasn't telling you everything, said Solomon. A couple of months ago, something happened to me and my business. I had a run-in with a crew using an android with all the latest mods. They used it to hack CityNet, and I was on the receiving end. After that, I started buying some bricks and mortar. I can tell you what happened to me if you've got the time. Go on, said Fowler, listening intently. Meanwhile, Kay organized the mine transfer to New Orstil, but had been informed that Sal would not be permitted up to the server firms. Only employees with the correct security clearance were permitted, and Sal was not even an employee. In the short time Kay had known Sal, she had really grown to like him and would miss his company. 
She turned the corner and her spirits sank again. Fowler had gone secure with Saul. Again. She knew that even though Fowler had praised her, he still kept locking her out. Privately, she wondered if Fowler respected her at all. She waited by their frozen images until she lost patience, standing around, wondering what they were talking about. She walked across the road and sat on a bench overlooking a nearby park, with criss-crossing curved arches where a band would occasionally play. A small bird landed on the bench beside her, looking for some breadcrumbs, but seeing that there were none flew away. Under the arch in the park, there were two human kids trying out their dance steps to some music they were playing while they recorded the steps. Kay smiled and envied their freedom, suddenly feeling a little homesick. She bit her lip and summoned up her small agent, Tinkerbell, looking for some company while she waited. It appeared in a sprinkle of golden dust and settled on her shoulder. Why so sad? Is it Fowler again? Kay nodded, wiping a small tear out of her eye. He still doesn't trust me, said Kay. He keeps locking me out. Why? asked Tinkerbell. Did he find out what Delcast asked you to do? No, replied Kay, feeling guilty. That's not the point. I just want him to trust me. Maybe you should tell him what Delcast asked you to do. I can't, said Kay. Why not? responded Tinkerbell. "'because he'd never speak to me again, and I kind of like him,' said Kay, looking away. The satnav image she had requested of the dig on Ursus appeared in her mailbox, and she opened it. The dig had been completely covered over by sand. In its place lay what looked like sandy shapes and shadows. They formed the outline of what looked like a faceless, hooded figure, staring right back at her. She forwarded the image to Fowler, wondering what he had gone through then looked over at his frozen image as he spoke privately to Saul. Trust me, Fowler, thought Kay. Please.
see you.